good morning again. Um, my name is Jeff Pitzer. I'm the director of worship here. I think most of you were all familiar faces, but just in case you're not familiar, I am not the pastor here. Pastor Brian is on vacation, um, well-deserved, and so I am filling in for him today, for better or worse, you have me here today. So, um, Also, my voice is a little hoarse because I stayed up and cheered very loudly for the Tennessee Titans, my beloved team, who not only last week knocked off the uh, Super Bowl champs, New England Patriots, but last night knocked off the number one team in the league, the Baltimore Ravens. So we're talking about miracles this morning, and I'm, uh, I'm all pumped for this uh, conversation. In fact, I'm so pumped, I want to show you guys a miracle on the screen. So if you can play. Do the Titans have a miracle left in them? in what has been a magical season to this point. If they do, they need it now. Christie kicks it high and short. Gonna be fielded by Lorenzo Neal at the 25. Yeah, pitches it, it back to Wycheck. He throws it across the field to Dyson. He's got something. 30, He's 40, got something. 50, He's got it. 40, He's got it. 20, 10, He's got it. End zone. Touchdown Titans. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Tennessee has pulled a miracle. Tennessee has pulled a miracle. Does anybody know what the name of that play is? No, not, not yet, not yet. You can stop that one. Does anybody know the name of that last play? Music City Miracle. That's what it's been termed. Considered one of the, one of the great moments in NFL history. Um, and uh, I remember watching that in person. Not at the game, but watching it on TV. And... 16 seconds left, it looked like we weren't going to make it, and we did. And if there are any Buffalo Bills fans in the room, yes, it was a lateral, not a forward pass. So there was a lot of controversy about that, and to this day, they'll still claim it was a forward pass. So, um, but as you started to see, in case you're not a football fan, or obviously not everyone in this room is a Tennessee Titans fan, this next one I believe everyone can get behind this team. I'm going to turn the volume up just a little bit, but if you go ahead and play that video for me, that would be great. Do you believe in miracles? What scene was that? 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Al Michaels, kind of, that was his saying that put him into infamy, was him saying that quote, do you believe in miracles? Do we believe the underdog can pull out a win? Well, the uh, Webster's defines a miracle like this. It says, an extremely outstanding or unusual event, thing, or accomplishment. We can all recount a miracle story like that, can't we? An un unbelievable odds and the underdog comes out on top. In that situation, the Russians were the gold medalists at the 64, 68, 72, and 76 Olympics. They were dominant. And as some of you probably have seen this movie, Kurt Russell starred in a movie that was aptly titled Miracle. 
And if you see the movie poster or you watch a trailer, inevitably you're going to see these words, usually pretty large underneath the title, based on the true story. And there's something about those words, isn't it? That if we, we don't know anything about a movie but if, or a book, but if we see based on the true story, we immediately go, hmm, something about that makes us want to watch it, right? We know something miraculous is going to be told in that story. But let me ask you a question. Do you believe in biblical miracles? It's a little different, isn't it? The definition that I read to you from Webster was actually the second definition. The first definition in the Webster's Dictionary says, an extraordinary event manifesting divine intervention in human affairs. Divine intervention. That's the big difference, isn't it? Do we really believe in biblical miracles? And let's be honest. I know that we're in the church and we're supposed to have all the right answers. You know, yes, I believe this and yes, you know, and all that sort of thing. But really be honest. I think more Christians than would like to admit have this kind of belief. We believe Jesus lived. We believed he was a good man and a moral teacher. He showed us the right way to live. We believe that he did sacrifice himself and died on a cross. Think he was raised from the dead? That's a bit of a big stretch for some people. However, if Jesus really was God or the Son of God, then if anybody could come back from the dead, it would be him, right? And it's a bit critical for our doctrinal belief. But sometimes we may struggle with the rest. Or we explain it away in some sort of scientific terms or something that those people back then didn't understand, right? Did he really walk on water? Or were they just seeing some sort of aberration in the storms and the rain and the wind? Did he really feed 5,000? Or did the people just start to share what they had and there was enough to go around? Is this a case of uneducated people back then describing things as best they could? Were they just overly superstitious? Let me ask you a question. How many of you have traveled to the ancient world, seen ancient ruins? A few of you? Yeah. Good. As most of you know, I just got back a couple months ago from a wonderful trip to Israel. In fact, that picture up there was one that I took, or at least one, nope, go back, if you don't mind, really quick, back to at least one of the, the, one of the people in our group took that picture. But that wall that you saw, that was the wall of the old city of Jerusalem. And that gate in the middle is called the Golden Gate. And you can't really tell from this angle, but those stones in that wall some of them are huge. Now you can go ahead, if you don't mind going to the next picture for me. Um, how did they get those around? Because these stones, it's not like they built every civilization next to a quarry. No, they built the civilizations in strategic places that they needed to be, whether they're on top of a mountain or whether they're by a water supply. 
So this was just a little contraption. This is actually a small stone. Um, it's at least five feet long. But that was one little contraption where they would actually use the stone as like the axle in a wheel system to move them around. I would not want to be the person who accidentally lets that thing start to roll down a hill and <laughs> lose control of it. But that's what that is. Let's go to the, the next picture really quick. That's my mom. Um, they just took a trip to Egypt not too long ago. And those are some stones behind her, the size of automobiles. Not small stones. How did they move them around? In fact, in Egypt, the quarry is way, I believe, on the south part of the country. And they had to take those stones, get them over to the Nile, float them up the river, and then move them to the place that they want it to go. Now, obviously, it helps if you have a lot of slaves, which is what they did. But still, men can only move so much without having to use some pretty ingenious techniques. I got to see some Roman baths and, and Roman ruins in Israel. And the aqueduct system is amazing that they have. They have systems that will literally transport water hundreds of miles. Um, they had these, and I don't even remember exactly what they are, but these things that they would build a floor underneath and they put water underneath and they had vents and they would create steam and it was their own little steam rooms. It was incredible how they did that and they had underground sewage um, that they had underneath the floors. It was, it was quite sophisticated. We got to go to Masada, which is this incredible fortress out in the uh, Dead Sea. Let's go to the next picture here. Actually, let me, uh, let me explain this really quick. So this is in Egypt as well. That was supposed to be one giant rock that they had carved out. And unfortunately, when they moved it, it cracked. So it stayed there. But that's an example. So these are people up on the upper left of the tip. Those are people standing there. That's how big this thing is. Many, many stories high. That they move, they carve it out, move it to where they want. So how do they get those things to stand up? They will build a giant hole, fill it with sand, and then they'll dig giant holes next to it that they have gateways to the other. They would put the base of that on, and then they would open up a door, and the sand would start to run out to the holes on the side. And guess what the thing would do? As the sand fell down, it would set itself up. And they were perfectly straight. Incredible. This is not like primitive people doing this kind of thing. Okay, next thing. So this is Masada. This is out at the south end of the Dead Sea. Now the Dead Sea is aptly named because nothing lives in it, okay? And as you can see, nothing around there lives. It is completely desolate. It's one of the driest places on earth. Yet Herod built this incredible fortress up on top of this plateau of this mountain. It, it was almost impregnable. Um, it was, it's an incredible marvel. That area of the country only rains once a year. Yet they built an aqueduct and cistern system that during that one rain, they would be able to capture enough rain for two years 
for all the people that would be living up on that fortress. Not, not dumb people. Let's go to the next one. Uh, these little holes here, those were like little cages or storage areas for carrier pigeons. They would actually train pigeons to take messages to and from other places like En Gedi. Again, pretty, pretty ingenious when you're up on the middle of this mountain. Okay, next one. This is the ceiling of an Egyptian tomb that my parents went to see. Now, it's kind of hard to see, but if you look, you see all these little lines and stuff there? Carvings and hi 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 uh, hieroglyphics, thank you, all throughout. Covers the walls, the ceilings, the floors. All of it was painted. Now, this is hundreds of feet below ground that they have dug down. And because these are tombs and they're sealed and everything, there's no vents down there. So they can't stay down there for hours with torches and carve and paint and work because obviously they would suffocate. There's no place for the smoke to go. So how did they do this? They used mirrors. They had mirrors at the entrance where the sunlight was and they shined it down and around corners and everywhere that they needed to go. And every single inch down there is carved and painted. And they did it all with sunlight and mirrors. People back then were not stupid people. They didn't have the technology that we have today, but technology builds on technology. As you invent one piece of technology, it leads you to other things. But I don't believe that people are describing miracles because they just don't know any other way to describe it. Yet, sometimes even Christians dismiss them when they talk about miracles. Let's talk about historical documents for a second. Have you or anyone that you know ever questioned Homer's Iliad? Now, if you're not familiar with that, it's a poem about um, a Greek battles that went on. So it is poetic, but it is based on historical facts. No one seems to dispute those facts. No one says, oh, that was a made-up poem. What he's talking about isn't really real, right? Have, has anyone ever heard that? No. What about Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars? Now, it's probably not as common of a read, but historians will use these documents as historical fact, right? I want to show you a chart, if you can go to the chart for me. These are some historical documents. Now, again, documents are written on papyrus or paper. They're not, at this point, they're no longer carved on stone. And so, because of that, books, paper, doesn't necessarily last for hundreds or thousands of years. So sometimes they have to be recopied, right? Also, if you're spreading this, this document around the world, you have to copy it. So there are copies of these. What this shows here, Homer's Iliad, the earliest copy, the earliest manuscript we have of Homer's Iliad dates to 500 years after the actual events happened when Homer would have actually written this. 
So we trust a document that has been copied and copied, and the oldest one that we have is 500 years after the actual events that happened. Caesar's Gallic Wars, a thousand years. Pliny's history, 750. Thurodides history, I don't even know if I'm saying these right, forgive me, 1300. Herodotus' history, also 1300 years after when these events actually happened. That's the earliest manuscripts that we have found. Let's take a look at the New Testament in the next slide. 25 years. And that's the Gospel of John that we'll be reading from today. Let's take a look at another uh, chart. These are the number of copies, the number of manuscripts that people have found through the years. Homer's Iliad, we found 643 copies. That, that's actually a lot. Because you look at the others, Caesar's Gallic Wars, 10. Pliny's History, 7. 8 and 8. Let's go to the next slide. New Testament, we found almost 25,000 different manuscripts. 5,800 are in the original language of Greek. 10,000 Latin, 9,000 in other languages. Now, I don't mean this to be a, a lecture or history lesson, but isn't it interesting that the one book that people seem to question more than anything else is the Bible? Yet, from a, just a pure academic sense, there is so much more reliability in this book than anything else. There's a biblical scholar that says there has been an estimate of only about 71 variations per manuscript. Of some of these, very, of these manuscripts are the equivalent of several hundred pages of text. Handwritten, the number of variants is additionally less significant than they may appear since it is a comparison across linguistic boundaries. More important estimates focus on comparing text with languages. Those variations are considerably fewer. The vast majority of these are accidental errors made by scribes and are easily identified as such. An omitted word, a duplicate line, a misspelling, a rearrangement of words. So the copies that they have found are incredibly accurate. That 71 variations per manuscript basically means like on average, if you compare this New Testament to that New Testament or this book to that book, on average they find 71 words or phrases that don't match exactly right in a book that is hundreds of thousands of words. It is incredibly accurate when you think about these are all being hand copied. The reliability and accuracy of Jesus' historical record is unparalleled. And not only that, but we have four different accounts by four different authors about the life and actions and words of Jesus. And they all are telling the same thing. Yet the accuracy of the Bible is questioned more than any other work. Why is that? If, they, if those things really didn't happen, then you have to refute stories, not from just one account, but from four different accounts by four different people. 
You have to disbelieve people that clearly were not less intelligent than you or I. And you have to discount writings from the most accurate and reliable text of any ancient writing. I think the reason why so many struggle believing in miracles from the Bible is because they don't see miracles today. Would you not agree? But that is why John wrote them. The person of Jesus is like no other person. He is supernatural. In fact, John says he is the Messiah. This whole series is based on two verses, the end of John, second to last chapter, chapter 20. It says, if you go to the next slide for me, I think I have it on there. Nope, okay, I don't have it on there. Let me read it for you. Sorry, you can go back to that picture. Um, John 20, 30 through 31, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. These stories, these miracles, these signs and wonders in the Gospels were written so that we will believe, not just in the miracles themselves, but in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Did you know that actually there were four miracles that the first century Jews were looking for that only the Messiah could do? They were called the Messianic miracles. When we, in further on in this uh, series, actually two of these miracles that you're going to read about were Messianic miracles that they believed only the Messiah could perform. But it goes even deeper than that because what I read to you wasn't the full verse of 31. John 20, 31 says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Miracles are meant to lead to belief in Jesus which then are meant to lead us to life. So, as we read the second miracle in this series, I, I implore you to believe what you hear and let it lead you, not just to Jesus, but to the life that he gives. So now, you can go to John chapter 4. We're going to go ahead and read this. Um, I'm going to read it from my Bible with my glasses. So I can read. It says, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, he being Jesus, where he had turned the water into wine. That's the, the story and the miracle that we read last week. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him and the news that his boy, with the news that his boy was living. When he acquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time 
in which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Let us pray. Lord, I just thank you for your word. And Lord, I just ask that you open up this word to us this morning. Lord, that you teach us what, you, what we need to hear. Lord, help us to see and believe the miracles, not just in this book, but in our own life. And I just pray that that leads us to you, to seek you out, and to experience life in your name. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back in Cana. So we were in chapter 2 last week. In case you're curious to know what has happened between chapter 2 and chapter 4. Uh, Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so the first recording of him turning over the, the uh, money changers tables in the temple happens then. He also meets with um, Zacchaeus. Not Zacchaeus, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry? Zacharias, thank you. I knew it was a Z and I was trying to remember who it was. Zacharias, and that's the, the story where he tells him that, he, that you, know, you must be born again. Um, and, and the famous passage, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that comes from there. Then we get to John 4, and he's traveling back, and he travels through Samaria, and he sits down at the well with the Samaritan woman. So then we get that story, and now he's finally arrived back in Galilee, and the people at Cana welcome him because he had done, he had done his first miracle there two chapters earlier. So we learn about this royal official that heard the news that Jesus was back in Galilee, and he sought him out. So one of the things that's interesting is he heard Jesus was back, and Jesus' reputation for doing miracles was already out there, and he believed it. Or at least if he didn't believe it, it was a thing of what else do I, what, what do I have to lose, right? I might as well try it. So there was at least some belief or, or grasping at some sort of hope, and he sought Jesus out. And when he came and met him, he begged him to come to Capernaum and heal his son. And Jesus doesn't respond the way we probably think he should. And that's not an uncommon thing. But instead of saying, okay, show me where he is or bring him to me, he makes a statement that's almost like a criticism. He says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. <clears throat> kind of harsh a little bit, right? But this official, it's almost as if he didn't hear it. It's like, okay, whatever, Jesus, just please, will you come heal my son? And I'm sure all of us have been at that point sometime where we're, we are so desperate, we're so hurt, we're in such survival mode that this is the only thing we can focus on. I believe Jesus made this statement not just to this man, but he used this event, this, this situation as an opportunity for a teaching moment. Because as you people, I don't think he's addressing just 
the royal official from Capernaum. I think he's addressing the crowd that's there. And he's addressing you and me today. I think it's both a criticism, but it's also a true statement. Because how often do we not believe until we have seen? And if nothing else, we need to credit this royal official because he had never seen a miracle by Jesus before. He had only heard about it. And I think if we can move to the place of hearing about God's signs and wonders and believing, that's a good step in the right direction. So then Jesus says, go, your son will be well. And the man takes him at his word. I think that's another uh, prop we can give this man that he has enough faith to take him at his word. Because Jesus didn't do what he wanted him to do. He didn't go with him. He just said, go, your son will be well. So Jesus says it's taken care of without him even having to go there. And the official believes. And then on his way, his servants meet him on the road as they're coming to give him good news. He's heading back. And they say, the boy is alive and better. And I don't know if it was just a kind of a, you know, inquiring, just like, that's amazing. How did this happen? When did this happen? Or if it was, wow, when did that happen? Because even though this man had faith and he believed Jesus, I think this is also another example of how we can be. Well, I believe Jesus, but... Was this really a miracle? Was it just a coincidence? Did he happen to get better on his own? And then when they share with him that it happened at 1 o'clock and he realizes that's the exact same time that Jesus said, go, your son will be well, then deal's done. That's too much coincidence. This had to be a miracle. I've shared with you before, but I'll remind you again, the Hebrew language the language of the Old Testament, of the Jewish people, there's no word for coincidence in their language. I don't think that's by mistake. Because for them, there are no coincidences. There's only God incidences. And that's what happened here. Things like that don't happen by chance. So what's the point of this story? What does it matter for us today? Is this a story that happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, as Brian said last week? Does this really matter for us in 2020? Well, I say absolutely yes, because we still need miracles today. I've shared with you part of our story. I'll share it again. We were not able to get pregnant. Went to the doctor and they confirmed our fears that we physically cannot get pregnant. Yet, I remember God speaking to me and that's probably a, a strong term. I, I felt in my spirit that this is what we should do. That we are to continue to pray and ask the Lord for this. That if we serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, two out of three of those men were in marriages that 
couldn't get pregnant until God intervened. God is in the business of doing miracles and bringing life. So we prayed and prayed for three years. Nothing happened. We did a round of in vitro. Nothing happened. But we got together with a, a pastor who has this gifting, anointing, whatever you want to call it, for praying for this specific thing to happen. Over 100 babies have been born after he's prayed over couples. And we met with him in February. And it was July that we found out that year that we were pregnant. We went back to the in vitro clinic and the doctor looked at everything and literally used the words, this is a miracle. I have no other way to explain it. So we are parents today because of a miracle. Sometimes miracles can be big like that. But sometimes they seem like coincidences. The boy was healed at one o'clock. As many of you know, I moved here from, I, I grew up here, but I, I lived in Nashville for 22 years. And I was looking to make a change in our lives, to make a career change, but we loved Nashville. But there was a church that was needing a worship director and so I applied for the position and ended up getting offered it. And that was the catalyst that made us move back to Illinois. After I applied for the job, I started noticing Illinois license plates when I was driving around town. This was the beginning of July of 2015. And I kid you not, we, I moved up here the end of September. And every single day from the beginning of July to the end of September, I saw an Illinois license plate. Now, that truly is a coincidence because apparently after moving here, I found out that 100,000 people are moving out of the state. 100, 100 people are moving to Nashville a day, so obviously they're all moving to Nashville. But joking aside, I... It would be uncanny. It would be the end of the day. I'd be like, I didn't see one today, but we need milk. Got to drive to the grocery store five minutes away. Pulled in the parking lot. There's an Illinois license plate right next to it. We uh, lived in a town called Brentwood, Tennessee. And we moved into the subdivision of Brentwood. We, uh, I had a, a car with the company I worked for, and so I had to trade that in at this dealership and so really the only car that we could afford to trade in at this dealership that was in our price range and would work for our family was a Lincoln as we drive to the land of Lincoln. We bought and sold both homes without ever having to list them. Our church, the church that I worked at was on Emerson Street, the name of my daughter right across from where my wife and I got engaged. The neighbor across the street from us in Tennessee, his first name was Doak. After moving in, we learned that the neighbor across the street from us, his last name was Doak. And her house is the sixth house down from the end of the road, just like it was in Nashville. Coincidence? Have you ever seen The Incredibles? That little guy, coincidence? I think not. God incidents. 
Jesus' statement was both a criticism and a truth. We struggled to believe whether or not we were supposed to do this until we saw the signs and wonders from God. But He showed us signs and wonders. But we shouldn't stop there. We need to first see and hear about the miracles. But then we need to start believing in the one who sent the miracles. Now, you may not have a story like I do, but you have the scripture. I thought that was my Bible for a second, but my Bible's over here. You have a book full of stories. But do you believe them? I'm going to make a statement that's very important. If I can find it. What you believe in the present is determined by the past. This is not just some distant past. This is our past. Because Jesus died for you at a certain point in history in our past. If that didn't happen, then our present is drastically changed. Is it not? This is your past. What you believe in the past determines how you live in the present. If you don't know this past, or if you don't believe what you read about the past, you're going to live that, that way. Next, just like the official, when you hear about it, when you see it, seek him out like the man in this story. First, he heard of the miracles of Jesus. Never experienced them firsthand, but he heard about them, so he sought Jesus out. And when we find Jesus and we get our miracle, it leads us to life. Just like this man had the life of his son back. And it wasn't, the belief wasn't just for him, but said his whole household believed. Let me kind of wrap this up, go back to the beginning. We saw that U.S. hockey team. Did anyone in the U.S. doubt after 1980 that the U.S. hockey team could pull off a victory against the Russians? No, because we had already done it. That miracle had happened, and it changed the way we believed about what could happen in the future. This book is full of miracles that God has done in the past. If there was a trailer or a movie about this, you would hear those five words based on the true story. Actually, I think what would be more accurate would just be true story. Read them and believe them. And I believe when you do that, you will start seeing miracles in your own life. Remember, there are no coincidences, only God incidences. So I want to leave you with the same question that Al Michaels asked of the people back in 1980. Do you believe in miracles? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you are God and that we are not. As much as that rubs up against 
our pride and our ego and our selfishness, Lord. It is a good thing that you are God and we are not. So, Lord, we want to submit ourselves to you, Lord. And we come to you telling you and proclaiming that we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Lord, help us to believe the words in the Bible and to, to let those words put us on a journey to seek you out for whatever situation is going on in our life, Lord. Because we need miracles. And Lord, I just pray that as we seek you out and that we see and experience miracles in our life, Lord, that it leads us to life, to fullness, Lord, to abundance. Lord, thank you for being our God. Help us to be your people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.